Welcome to Interscription. Soaring through the AI-generated minds at Google, we spend our time parsing this week's I.O. conference, dreaming of a world where devices are flexible and priced fairly. A quick stop in handheld PC gaming is also on our docket this week, discussing the Asus ROG Ally announcement, the future of Windows handhelds, and Rich tripping the Tokyo Fantastic. Thanks for staying on this road with us. Well, it's going to be as close to a live podcast as we're going to have for a while. We are coming in hot on a Friday morning and going to be posting shortly after. It's that that uh, one of the many times in uh, Top Gun Maverick where somebody's making a landing that's uh, ill-advised, but somehow thrilling because of the accompanied music. That's what we're doing today. So, so does that mean after we do this, we're actually going to be massively delayed because I have to go like write some action music to play under this? Yes. I, I was assuming that uh, perhaps uh, unfairly so that you just had a couple of those in the bag at all times, like that just swelling, orchestral, stirring moments of music. I, I do. I just wanted to make it sound like it was going to be a lot more work than it was. But yes, let me just Cut. rifles through collection. <laughs> Opus <laughs> 400. Open up, open up the, oh, look at here. I do have that. Yeah, it's fine. So I was listening uh, last weekend. We were um, up visiting my mom and uh, the kids found this um, Trivia for Kids podcast, which uh, you know I know we're not due for a business meeting, but uh, we need to revamp the entire idea of our podcast to be a trivia show for kids. Okay. Um, it really is like, it's just a mom and her kids. They alternate her to her son and daughter every week, um, like six or seven year olds. Uh, and it, it's exactly what it sounds like. They go through quiz questions and, uh, you know, it's kind of like for the kids in the car, it's, you know, it is uh, Disney princesses is the topic. And, uh, you know, who is the only Disney princess who has a tattoo? And, uh, you know, you just go through like these five rounds of questions, uh, incredible model, incredible listenership after one year, because it's uh, filling an absolute void of parents who are, whose eyes are rolling out of their heads, thinking about whether or not they should just edge into the median just for mm-hmm. a break, just for a mm-hmm. fucking break. Um, but I noticed, uh, apropos of this, and it took me like, I don't know, 115 episodes of listening to it, that they have music running under the entire episode to give it like that, like exciting quiz feel, like mm, everything nice. is being timed, even though it's not, it's just a mom and her kid reading questions into a microphone, but they've got this like little undertone of music that's going. And um, we absolutely should not do that, but it's amazing how intelligent they were to do that in creating that quiz show environment mm-hmm. with something that's barely noticeable. Yeah. That it's like, that's great. some of the does, best music. Does it change tempo at some point or is it like sort of just on loop? No, it's a, it's a base, probably royalty free. Give me quiz show track, like a, you know, a two on the volume meter that just runs throughout the whole thing, regardless of what they're doing as soon as they start the questions. Oh, got it. So they're not like queuing stuff or whatever. It's no, just running. It's there. not that sophisticated, but it's effective. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm sure it could be more effective, but it was like the fact that as nerdy as I am about that, like I didn't even pick up on it for a couple of mm-hmm. episodes. And then I kind of went back and really like, oh, yeah, that's why it feels like more produced than what it actually is. Mm, right on. But we are right not on. here to talk about trivia for kids. So is it 
Oh, is it Moana? Like which which of the? No, which it the was um, Pocahontas. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought right. Moana too, but no, it's Pocahontas. Uh, yeah. No tattoos for Moana. Got it. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, that's yeah. uh, so. that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think yes, we'll uh, we'll have to get. Uh, uh, I, I hear you. You don't probably don't want to be the one on the hook for writing music for the quiz show podcast that we're about to do. So maybe, right. uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we can have AI do it. Maybe, maybe AI is the way. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as voiced by Grimes, uh, I understand that's a fair game. Yes, absolutely. Would, would the song have anything to do with ducks that have lips? Would that, would that be... How we are jumping right into that uh, trippy acid fest that was the Google I.O. opener, aren't we? We're getting in, dude. We don't, we, time wastes for no man. Wastes, waits, waits, wait, wait for it. Time waits for no man. Time waits for no man. And uh, Google I.O. came and went. Uh, It was really probably the biggest uh, news bit this week. But yeah, so I guess it was kind of the pre-show because I tuned in when you asked me if I was high enough to be watching it. And it was like a little before the keynote itself actually started. And it was this guy, this guy. DJ, yep. who is talking about AI as I'm sure we'll get into a lot of Google I.O. was talking feverishly about AI and how we've got AI in your cornflakes, AI in your fridge, AI on your toilet, like uh, AI in all the things. That's uh, they they have a lot of AI that they wanted to show off. But this was opening it and really setting the tone with this DJ is talking about. I guess the AI was making the beats and also the vises for what mm-hmm. he was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was kind of, sort of like a stable diffusion kind of thing going on in the background, like a real like he would. I don't know if it was doing it in real time. That's probably a bit much, but I, I think he was telling a little story and like some of the visits behind him were uh, representative of what he was talking about. And um, one of the topics was uh, that he was, he had a roommate that was a duck and that duck had lips and could talk to him. That was a, that was a big deal. Yeah. I, I thought it was real time that it was like responding to what he was saying. Was that- maybe, maybe. I mean, I, what I'm saying is, is they they probably teed it up that way. I just don't know if it was faked for stage. Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, well, I'm so I, obviously some of it was contrived because uh, it ended with an actual person in like a mascot uniform as a duck with lips coming out to jam out with him. So, pretty sure the AI didn't make that fucker. But if it did, I then mean, we're done. Yeah, uh, then we're-, we're done. It's. <laughs> You know, then that's it. Lock the doors. Mm-hmm. Not that that's going to help, but, you know, just get your shit in order. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. What did you think about the show overall? Uh, starting with the AI, getting into the devices. Yeah, I guess I thought uh, I probably won't spend a ton of time on the AI portion because I, I think I, I just I saw this weeks ago with with a lot of the, the chat GPT four stuff that uh Microsoft's doing with Bing and, and using Copilot for Microsoft 365. Like I saw a lot of this, so I don't know that I care as much um, for Google doing it. Like, uh, you know, particularly around like the Google workspace stuff. Like I only, I have to use it at work, but uh, you know, sometimes, but I still use Microsoft stuff at work as well. So I, I just, I guess I don't care as much about its applications in there. Um so the AI stuff to me wasn't all that interesting. I think it's smart for them. 
Microsoft had mentioned they were going to be working on this too, and so have other people. But I think it's smart for them to have uh, leaned in a little bit, Google leaning in a little bit on the code uh, generation and code design, uh, code debugging, um, all happening through AI. I think that was pretty smart because um, that is, you know, certainly a great. Uh, place for this uh, technology to kind of help. Um, I don't think it replaces coders immediately, but for you and I who, you know, can understand and look at code, but certainly not, you know, sit down and write enormous programs that do all kinds of things. Like, I think that's a, that's a cool thing. You know, I mean, I think you can write snippets of code through AI now in ways that are probably competent enough, you know, that you could hand to a programmer and it would work. Um, I did think the one thing I'll say that is kind of interesting um, because I think we saw one of the things in AI and this sort of starts blending into some of the pixel stuff and some of the other stuff that was happening. But um, there was that um, there was the scene that uh, there was that little girl sitting on the bench with the balloons and uh, they tapped on it and pulled it. um, And then it just made more balloons and more bench and, then there was also a piece about in in the code generation stuff. And I think in the code generation stuff and in that image stuff, they did show, uh, they showed something about like kind of um, attribution basically. Like, so like saying like this code was pulled from this part of GitHub and this image its origination and its metadata is what this is. And then we have now, referenced that in this basically AI touched slash generated image or, or code. Um, and I don't want to call that NFT exactly, but I do appreciate that it has sort of a breadcrumb trail of this is what I, this is the image that it used to be. We fucked with it. And now it looks like this, right? This is the code it used to be. We fucked with it. Now it looks like this. Um, and I, I want that to be something that starts getting standardized pretty soon because I think, um, as a sidebar here real quick, um, Gareth Coker, he's a composer. Um, he did music for lots of things. Most front of mind for me is uh, Ori in the Blind Forest and or, um, Ori in the Will of the Wisps. He did that stuff. And one of the w- music websites that he's part of, I, I don't remember it now and I'd have to go look at it, but um, they have an updated terms of service that he caught when he went to go refresh his terms of service that says that they will train AI on the music music you upload. Um, and if you're not reading that and you're just accepting the terms and conditions, like we all do for everything, then you could be putting up creative works that are automatically being scraped by AI and feeding into a machine that maybe you don't want that. Um, so I feel like that's like a, you know, I mean, it's something I think we've talked about a little bit and we're going to continue to talk about as AI gets bigger, but that, that to me was, uh, was sort of, uh, sort of shocking. So, um, anyway, in terms of the AI stuff, what did you think about the AI stuff? Yeah, I, I think largely the same in the sense that we've seen a lot of this, um, you know, other places I've interacted with AI doing the same thing. Um, Notion is kind of an independent workspace sort of like wiki thing that I use in my office. And they've got a very impressive AI for, you know, can you build me a table that does this or can you... I'll take meeting notes uh, in Notion and then, you know, please summarize the meeting and it'll summarize it so I can like send back to the team a competent summary of everything we talked about. That's not just my own like scatterbrained uh, note taking. So, like, we're not new. And obviously, 
Google has always been search first and information first. And so I think that is the part that's ultimately more important for them. And from a business standpoint, they need to get behind how they're going to make money in an AI world because the idea of traditional search where they're making money by surfacing ads that are related to that search or you know the first couple of things are like paid click ads doesn't work in an AI context where you're asking a conversational question and getting an answer and i think that was the part that stood out the most to me is i saw the first signs of that when they got into when you ask their AI about products and you know what's the best mountain bike for you know going for was like kind of the example that they used mm-hmm. um so all of like the office workspace stuff is sort of everybody's going to have it everybody has to have it this is theirs it's like having you know here is our print this is how we print and save to pdf and so you can have it in word and you can have it in gdocs we all have it mm-hmm. right like it's i think it's table stakes at this point but the product search and the contextual bits of that i thought was kind of an interesting key and what i don't think that they're necessarily copying to yet as somebody who does paid search ads for my law firm is that's great if you're a consumer and you want to find out what the best mountain bike is for a long for a 6 mile commute and actually get the answer as to what the best mountain bike is for six mile compute because the AI isn't going to do any of that. But if I am a mountain bike maker, like there's always the organic side of just build a better mountain bike and build the content explaining why my, you know, graphite infused mountain bike shell is like a better shock absorbing frame and actually do that work to make a better product. But I don't need to pay Google for that, right? Like I just Mm -hmm. need to pay my R&D and my content writers to make the best mountain bike that's going to draw the customers. To give Google money, I need to be able to come in first, regardless of whether or not I have the best mountain bike. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to surface for those searches. And that's where I'm not really sure what the fuck they're doing there. Like I kind of saw like some of the threads with how they're building this into Google Shopping and maybe it's pay for placement, pay to be there in the first place. And that's going to be where they shift more of that. But, you know, I I don't know how they overcome that. And I can see that they're starting to spin those wheels to try to figure out how we use AI in a product world. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm most interested in, like where my ears perk up with Google in particular as compared to, you know, Microsoft does have a big advertising market. Like that's a not insignificant part of their revenue for Bing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not core to who they are as a company the way it is for Google. You know, it's not core to who Apple is. Uh, you know, Google is an advertising company first and foremost because they are the first place your eyeballs go, and so they have that captured intent to make a lot of money on ads. So it's a unique problem for them. Mm-hmm. Where I think you know, I mean, Microsoft, uh, Apple. Uh, even Facebook to a certain extent could probably be a little more disruptive with AI and just get you to the answers. And you kind of see that in what Bing is experimenting with, with their like AI assisted search, where they're just going to give you answers. Like you want the answer, we've got the answer because we would just want you on the platform. That's where the value is. It's not purely the advertising. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think uh, kind of transitioning some of that, that it moved into kind of where they were going to put that in their products. So I think the next thing in Google I.O. was like, you know, some of the products that they're looking to ship. Um, well, I guess I'll, I'll toss to you. How did you feel about uh, some of the products there? Like, I, I, I think with, uh, I guess, the ones that come top of mind here is the tablet. Yep. Um, they had the Pixel Fold um, and then the uh, Pixel 7a, which I... I I want to put kind of a footnote on at the end there. Yeah, so I will also put a footnote uh, and just kind of uh, pass on the 7A. Like, it's not generally an interesting product to me, but I want to come back to why it's an important product in the marketplace. But kind of going in that order, the tablet, I think, is transformative. And I kind of snarked with you. We had a great live chat going while we were watching this. Um, you know, they're, they came out, uh, the woman who was like starting the announcement said, you know, isn't it frustrating? You know, the tablet hasn't really changed in 10 years and it's in your drawer and, you know, the one time you need it, it's out of battery and really annoying. And it, the thing that was kind of is sort of disingenuous there is Google, unfortunately, largely conceded the tablet market about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, mm-hmm. so, I mean, they're not acknowledging that they've been out of the game and relying instead on their partners to do a lot of the work, Galaxy to do a lot, Samsung to do a lot of the work. And their partners also haven't done it because what you have to do to make a tablet OS is so fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually run into this a little bit with um, e-readers. Uh, as I picked up, I think I said a couple episodes ago, a color e-reader and mm-hmm. um Love the device and it runs Android. And that is great for the fact that I can have a Kindle app on a third-party e-reader and have an e-ink experience with Kindle without owning a Kindle. And that means mm-hmm. I can also have other apps and I can have a feed reader and whatever I want in a browser and do all of that stuff. And that's cool. But Android is kind of kludgy on a bigger screen interface. And mm-hmm. the e-reader, of course, adds an additional layer because it's not a traditional screen. But you really need to care about that interface in a certain way or build your OS from the ground up to understand where things are going to expand or collapse. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Google, largely with Android for like the last decade, has sort of said, you know, fuck it. No, we're just not that into it. And they haven't had a device of their own. So when they started the announcement and said, you know, nothing's really changed in 10 years, like, yeah, with you guys. Right. I mean, Apple has been in the game. They've been putting out new iPads every year and uh, building on the tech and improving their tablet OS and differentiating it with more desktop-like features and more kind of like surface-like keyboard and mouse support, like as they've kind of grown it. And instead of phone to tablet, they've been tablet to laptop. And you see like those two worlds coming together for them, which mm-hmm. I don't know is the right answer either, but they've at least been strategizing and working on it for better or worse. And so Google coming in with that aside, I think they kind of hit it out of the park and offered a value prop that's different than what Apple has been doing and actually built on their core strength, which is Google Home. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't really have the imagination to see that but I think it's a brilliant move. So for anybody who didn't see the announcement, um, the Google tablet is a tablet with basically a Google Home dock, like a speaker and charging magnetic dock built in so that when it's docked, 
it's like a Google Home device, which is usually like a, a fixed screen device that you can talk to, have in your kitchen, feed recipes, but it's not a tablet you can take. Now you just pop the screen off and it's a 10 inch tablet that goes from a Google Home mode when it's docked, that's a little more simple and voice activated and passive informational to a full Android tablet that gives you all of your apps and ability to do the things you want as you walk around the house. I think that's a fucking stellar form factor and Mm -hmm. it's going to answer the question, who doesn't have an iPad and what are you doing instead? And I think that's that market segment of people who have Alexas all over, Google Home devices all over, and now you don't have to have an extra device. Mm-hmm. So I think like that was kind of like an eye-opening moment of like fucking brilliant. Like I really don't have any dings to give them on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely killer stuff, and and priced right too. So you got what is that four ninety nine for a very competent tablet? That Tensor G two is is quite performant, and uh, and then it includes that home dock right so that magnetic dock has got like four speakers in it and usb charging and you know from the back and um and you know the the of course the magnet surface on the front to snap it onto and that's really good that's really good um i i hope that uh i hope that it takes off for them i'm there is a pivot to and i I haven't played with it yet because it's really just i'm kind of pretty deep into the alexa uh kind of uh smart home uh bit but i think uh I, I'd like to see how Google home, the app, because I guess they just did finally a relaunch of that this month. Um, I guess it's still rolling out to everybody, but, um, that it's got support for matter and it's got like, you know, and it's, it's, um, the, the iOS version of Google home apparently is, is fully, you know, uh, uh, rebuilt and, uh, which was another big kind of waiting in the wings thing, but like the dashboard of it is actually much smarter than it used to be. I'm wondering if all these pieces are converging in a way that, um, would be interesting. I, I, I would like to see that. I would like to see what happens there with with the change. Um, quite frankly, I think it's uh, it's very interesting. It's very interesting to see the um, uh, them maybe kind of finally coming around to that. I've really felt like you just have two answers right now. Um, but then again, that's just my anecdotal experience from people I know. Like I feel like. Um, uh, and we probably won't get to it today. I do want to talk about ambient computing at some point. Um, Humane uh, just did their TED talk and showed some of their stuff there. And I want to talk about that at some point, but uh, maybe not this week. Um, but one of the things um, I was just talking to my, uh, my stepbrother yesterday about um, uh, Alexa, right? And the idea of uh, this ambient computing idea of like, like talking to it, right? Like saying that like there's... Uh, you know, like for me, the one that was always the hook and the thing I told him, the thing that works is like you throw one of those in your kitchen and you just yell at it for timers, right? Like that's a big one. Just, you yep. know, hey, but you know, put a timer on for this or whatever. Um, weather's another big one, you know what I mean? But what what happens with that is that if you only buy one and you put it in your kitchen, then what happens when you go set a timer for 30 minutes and then go in your living room, right? And you need to stop the timer because it's going off. Now you need to jump up. You need to run across the, over to your kitchen so you can go yell at the thing. Right. Well, Alexa fixed that by, or Amazon fixed that more specifically by putting 
that price point so ridiculously low for the dots that you can literally for 30 bucks when they're on sale, put one in every single room in your house. So for a couple hundred bucks, you can have ambient computing a la Amazon in every single room of your house. Right. Um, and that was smart because they really capture that low end because these are just smart speakers connected to the internet who can talk to the cloud and just get you all the answers you need and, and do some basic things. Um, and kind of the high end, and I really have been kind of curious about this. So like the high end where you've got your home pods, right? Like where you've got a little bit more of the Apple home kit stuff going on. Um, not that, you know, <laughs> if you live at the house, uh, in, in M night Shyamalan servant, maybe that's not a big that's deal, right. but <laughs> a lot, not, not a lot of people have, you know, home pods in, you know, three and four per room, <laughs> like they did in that in that show. Um, but I, I think like, it becomes an expensive value proposition to do that. Right. Like, and I think that that's a thing that, you know, you really just have to be, unless you want to have this for, you know, and Apple does sell a brand as much as they sell technology. Like they aren't really interested in selling $30 speakers. I get that. But, um, but I think that there's only so much penetration that can happen when you're trying to have this ambient computing idea. Right. And so it's important for Google to remember that when they're pricing out some of these devices, we'll pivot here in a second to the Pixel devices, but for that Pixel tablet, $499 with that dock. And, you know, they also threw in the subtle dig to Apple because it has multiple profiles, right? With biometrics. So you pick yep. it up and, you know, everybody in your household can use the same tablet because they can just cycle through their own apps and their own TV shows and their own everything. Um, and 499 is not a lot of money, right? To have something that everybody can use. And it's also that smart speaker. So it has further utility. So when you're not playing with this thing and you put it in there, it becomes that tablet that's in your kitchen or wherever you would, you would want it. Um, and that's good. That's a really good, that's a really good move. So I think it's priced accordingly with being something that can do premium jobs like a tablet needs to do sometimes, but then also be able to have this extra utility when it's sitting in the corner um, in a kitchen or whatever. So I think the pricing was super impressive there too. Like they could have absolutely, um, as we'll talk about in a second, you know, go for the high end. You know, I think I think Google is um, I think sometimes there's this sort of like classist thing that like, you know, uh, you know, well, Apple, you know, has the, got this luxury brand and it's very expensive and, you know, it's associated with money. Everything about them is associated with money. And so, like, I think Android has like almost unfairly and Google in particular has gotten this unfair kind of, uh, well, you know, if you have an Android device, I guess it's just, you know, you got, you have the cheap version. You don't have the expensive version of a phone. You don't have the expensive version of a tablet. Um, and I think, uh, so, you know, that the idea that Android scales so low is important. And I think they do that pretty well, but I think it has come with some of that extra baggage around the image of the company. So I think Google has been trying to fight that by having these pixel devices that, um, are premium high-end stuff, right? Like the, the yeah. pixel seven pro and, and six pro before it, like are very nice phones, you know, with the G one and the G two, um, uh, tensor chips. Um, they're very, very performant, lots of Ram, like great cameras. Like it's got a, you know, beautiful screens, like it's got all the stuff, you know, and it's kind of a premium product. Um, so like they have to price that stuff in a way that's still attainable, but they also have to maintain this air of not just having cheap phones and cheap tablets and cheap everything. Cause if it feels like that, that's how people are going to treat it in the market. Um, so I'm proud of them for finding the right price point there. I think 499 for that tablet and for that dock is exactly where it should be. It's not too cheap to the point that it's just going to become throwaway. Like in, in terms of the technology that's inside of it, it's not too expensive, meaning that like people could really add this to their home without breaking the bank. Um, so I think it's good. I think it was a good, yeah. it was a good, uh, 
uh, pivot. I guess uh, moving over then to like the Pixel Fold. Um, so this is uh, their their first foldable. Yep. Um, yeah. Their, um, what was your vibe on it? I I, I own a uh, I own oh, I yeah, it was given it, to me through work the the Galaxy Fold three. But um, so I have some full exactly. ideas about it. But go ahead. Yeah. So I'm gonna really have you kind of take the lead on it. You know, I think my first brush thoughts. First of all, I thought it was beautiful. It presented really well. You know, you were kind of saying that some of the things that were cool, like Samsung's already done the work on. And so like, you know, they were cool for me as somebody who doesn't have a foldable device. Um, I think like the big takeaway here is it's sort of an important pivot along with the tablet because it comes back to supporting these larger form factors on an OS level and with Mm -hmm. the next version of Android. And so a lot of what was cool is sort of related back to Android working well on a larger screen. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, some of the split screen stuff, some of the open screen stuff, the app and app and stuff is equally applicable to getting back into the tablet game as it is into the fold game. Uh, But I got to tell you, I have felt this a little bit like with your Galaxy Fold seeing it, you know, and uh, we'll talk about like, screen form factor, thickness with case, and all of that, which I'm going to pass to you on. Mm -hmm. But I'm very jealous of the Android world and the ability to have a foldable device because I think the idea of having a single device that is both your phone and your tablet is sort of the platonic ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm walking around with an e-reader on the bedside and that's fine for like, you know, eye strain. And I still think e-ink is great, but it's a long way off from being anything other than a niche. But what I don't do is I really don't grab my iPad very often. Uh, you know, I've got it sort of permanently set up in my studio for a couple of music apps and synth apps that are only there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I might not be thirsty for an e-reader or something else if I had a larger device with me, you know, because sometimes I do want to just plop out and watch a show on something other than a phone screen and, you know, in a bigger format, or I want to read more comfortably than, you know, I will, you know, on a single phone screen. So I feel like the idea of a foldable kind of all-in-one is sublime. I think it's like perfect. Um, And I've seen a couple of things with your Samsung, like notably that the um, screen size and shape when it's closed is not really what I want out of a phone. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think you end up flipping it open maybe more often than you would because of that. So kind of with that queued up, like where do you fall? Where do you fold on the Google Pixel Fold? Where, yes. <laughs> yes, I I uh I will fold. I um yeah, you you hit it. I, I I do not I do not appreciate on the fold three anyway. They changed it a bit on the fold four. There's rumor that it's changed just a little bit more on the fold five, but that external screen is tall and it's narrow. And it is the one thing that like drives me a little bit bonkers because they're frustratingly like and i don't want to like lay this exactly at the developer's feet probably gonna lay it at android's feet but uh you know because which is kind of all what we're talking about here with them getting back into the tablet game with foldables and with that but um there are apps that i go to launch on that home screen that are just cramped like they they there's only they there's an assumption that there's a certain aspect ratio for your screen right like this which you know, you know, kudos to Apple for, you know, making the iPhone a thing like it, that there is a certain ratio of screen size, external screen size. That means that developers are targeting with 
you know, with some margins of safety, they are targeting a certain aspect ratio, not really a size, but like the difference between horizontal and, 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 and vertical. Right. Um, that's been kind of problematic for particularly the fold three. Um, it's kind of interesting when they showed the pixel fold against the other pixel devices, um, they sort of created a different problem, which is okay. Um, and it should have been the one that everybody else did instead, including Samsung, but they actually widened it to the point that it's basically the same width of, as a phone now, like, which I kind of always assumed that they should do, but they did that at the expense of some height. They actually brought it down just a little bit. So it's actually a little bit squatter, um, as a phone than, than, uh, than some of the, even their, their, their normal rectangular slabs. Um, I think I would have always preferred that to be honest. Like, I don't think I need the full screen as much because you, you, you know, that us scrolling is always up and down, right? Like we, we rarely scroll side to side and, um, in apps. Um, so I, I think that that's the right call out of the two, but in order to maintain whatever form factor they wanted when it's open, they actually changed the problem by making it wider and, and squatter. Um, so, um, that will be interesting. I would have to play with one in order to figure that out. But I think that that's an easier thing for developers to deal with because I think there's a certain width of screen that's necessary for a, for a, a developer. Um, but, um, but that said, I think it's cool. Um, their hinge design is a little bit different, um, which I think is, uh, is probably a smart one. It's actually kind of a blend of that surface duo that, that the one that Microsoft made. Yeah. Um, it's like that kind of hinge, but it has a, obviously the, uh, foldable screen is con- continuous inside. Um, and yeah, some of the software tricks, Samsung's already kind of jumped in. Um, Android started with in 12, they made a separate branch of Android 12 called 12 L and 12 L was actually like, sort of like this point release for tablet foldable type things. Right. Um, and then 13 is, is out now and 13 had some of that stuff codified. So it came back to being one OS again. Um, but 14 seems like the one that's going to actually have all the, all the pieces that really, um, will will be very tablet friendly um so yeah we'll see i uh I, how do you feel about I don't, the price yeah i think eighteen hundred dollars is a lot of money for anything that's like i understand that right. this is supposed to combine a tablet and a phone and i think it will edge more into doing that but i think if you want a full tablet experience I don't think you're going to not buy a tablet i think is the thing right yeah. so i think like the um so this will make things that most phones can't do happen here in terms of like, so um, uh, I actually stayed with my, uh, my stepbrother a couple of years back. And uh, one of the things he has an iPad and one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is like sometimes for breakfast, he would come out and he would, you know, make oatmeal, make whatever. And he would sit at the table, have his oatmeal, have his coffee, and he would have his iPad out. And like, that was his like, kind of like watching TV while he was, you know, eating. Um, and, uh, it's weird because I never really thought about it like that. For me, breakfast was just kind of sitting at you know at the breakfast table and wolfing down breakfast for a few minutes and coffee, and then moving on to whatever. Really, wouldn't do that in front of the TV ever. So, um, so it was interesting to kind of bring that screen into the kitchen, right? I will say, since having the Fold Three, um, I do that is a breakfast ritual sometimes, like to, especially on the weekends. I mean, in the it, it most most during the week, I'm usually busy with work or you know kiddo stuff, so I, I don't have as much time uh, during breakfast and during the week. But on the weekends, like if if I want to watch, a, uh, a, you know, something or whatever, that's a easy win for me. I can pop my screen open full screen, you know what I mean? Uh, open the fold up. And then I have that as like a little mini screen in the, uh, in the, you know, on the kitchen table. Um, 
I will say, I think it's kind of interesting that like nobody's really trying to figure out the uh, the kickstand part of a, of a foldable. I, I feel like uh, $1,800 is a stupid amount of money, period, full stop. But I, right. I think- uh, And I just want like, and that's the 256 gig version. The 512 is 2,000. Is 2,000. So yeah, we should just call it two grand then. Yeah, yeah easy. Because so, again, like two, there is no SD card, so- you just go get the big one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I, they do want you to be using Google photos and uploading they all sure your do. shit anyway. Yep. So, um, maybe, maybe for them, they think <laughs> 256 is fine, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. So if you're saying 2000 bucks for sure. Um, but yeah, why are we not getting a kickstand on these things? Like I've had to actually make some decisions about the cases that I get for the Z fold three that, that have kickstands built into the case. Um, and so it's kind of weird that the phone that they are definitely pimping as not having a case on it, like doesn't have that. Also like the cases that are actually out there, a lot of them don't have that. Um, interestingly enough, because the kickstand, uh, if they use a metal pin in the kickstand in the back, um, then wireless charging, the phone gets very hot because the, the there's a piece of metal there that, that, right. that, that is, that's conducting metal. So, um, not that they shouldn't try to figure out how to do that with plastic and it's dumb that they don't, but you know, but that does happen too. So like, you have to be careful about what case you're buying for that. Anyway, yeah. it's a smaller thing, but I would say, um, it's really cool. The one, some of the software stuff that isn't on the fold today, um, they showed the, uh, translation app. So they were in a restaurant where there was a native speaker of whatever yep. nationality that was the waiter coming over to talk to them at the table. And there was a language barrier. So like they actually held up this foldable because when you un- unfold your, your foldable, you have a rear screen and a front screen now, right? Um, and the back screen that's facing the waiter had the translation and then the front screen facing you has the translation in reverse. So the microphones are kind of picking that up and doing a real time Google translate thing, which is, that's just fucking rad. Like that's, that's like some future shit right there. Um, And you can't get that with a regular phone. Like you just can't like that's, that's just not going to happen. You have to have something that does that in order to get that. I I fully admit that there are times that I would use that in English to English just because I didn't want to talk to somebody and just be like, (laughs) I don't like you hold the phone up. That's right. Dude, I'm standing right here. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> or just, just for the, just for the extra comedic effect, I would translate it into some language they didn't understand. <laughs> so they'd have to stare at it. That's that would right. also be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, there's a really interesting like side point on this. Uh, and I think it's keynotes in general, Android definitely does this. Uh, Apple does this heavily with their um, uh, much maligned between us, like their Titan watch that was like their first upgrade, which is there's like an aspirational nature to some of this early tech that is showing a lifestyle that nobody's leading. No. Like how many times, as cool as that is, as fucking awesome as that feature is, are you going to be in a fucking fancy restaurant in a foreign country and need to order your 100-year-old glass of wine in a way that's understood that, you know, you prefer Malbecs. Like, that's not true. And, like, how often are you going to be summiting some remote mountain on your mountain bike and realize that you got a flat tire and you need your private helicopter to come get you? Like So some of this stuff is, like, we made a really cool device. You're going to watch YouTube on it on your couch, but... In case you're not, 
That's right. <laughs> but also one day when you're over in that, Spain that, and you really right. need to get that. that, that I, I mean, that, yeah, that, this is what we did in Lisbon. And so we think it's cool. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, truly people who can just on a whim do their their pre-orders for a $2,000 foldable phone. Maybe, maybe those people are over in Lisbon, but I, I yeah, I guess that is fair uh, on that. But I, I do think some of it is like, we're getting into the foldable game. We're building this. And then they go to their marketing team and say, give us five really cool things that you could do with this and we'll build mm. them. And they come mm. back with like, these kind of like snazzy keynote things because that's very cool. It is absolutely <clears throat> awesome. And, Credit to Google, they've been on the live translation thing for a while. I've actually had my receptionist a couple of times when somebody's called in and not spoken English, been able to like speak back like on a phone call and have like Google Translate like translate in real time and speak to them for her. Yes. Uh, so like they're in this game. Like mm-hmm. I'm not taking that away from them. I just uh, a lot of people who really want a tablet built into their phone are probably not going to be doing that with it. Yeah, probably not so much. Yes, yeah, it is. They, they, it is a lot of sizzle reel for sure. But, but yeah, two thousand dollars is a fucking lot of money um, for anything, especially a phone. Um, yeah, then so then uh, that's a perfect segue into just quickly mentioning, and then maybe we'll take a break here. But um, the Pixel Seven A. Um, so I guess they kind of have this sort of every time they'll do a version of their Pixel phone. So they'll be like the 7 and 7 Pro, which is I think usually just a screen size difference, maybe a little RAM or whatever. Um, and they did this with the six, and I think they did it with the five too. So the, after they've come out with the flagship, the seven and seven Pro, which are again very very similar, a little later on they'll launch the A. Um, and somebody said in a blog, A stands for affordable. So um, and and so it is very like um, like this kind of like. Um, uh, trimmed down version of that flagship, you know, in ways that are usually very smart and very. Uh, uh, reasonable, um, man, when you look at the seven a though, like, I wonder if they cut a little bit too, um, a little bit too deep on the price and not on the features, which is great for consumers, but I don't know that it's necessarily great for Google because that phone is almost exactly like the seven and seven pro, like it's almost exactly. And the, one of the things that is near and dear to my heart and has been for Android forever, ever is wireless charging. I love wireless charging. I think everything, every, every phone should have wireless charging. It's bullshit that when they don't, um, and, uh, the, one thing about the A's is they, up until now, they were not wireless charging capable. Um, the OnePlus phones also, uh, that, who, that are also very usually um, good, you know, uh, values in, in the Android market, um, also usually don't have wireless charging, which always drove me crazy because otherwise they looked like such great devices. Um, but anyway, the 7A, the Pixel 7A has wireless charging and it has a 90 hertz refresh on the on the exterior screen too. So that's like... So it's like kind of an amazing device and it's $499. Like it's like it's 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 the same price as that tablet with the speaker dock. Like it's 500 bucks. And that's not including like subsidies and stuff. Like if you do Google Fi, I was reading uh, Christopher Grant's thing on uh, on The Verge. It like he's getting his phone for 250 bucks with, with with like, you know, the rebates and the, you know, the the the, you know, signing up for a new new service and everything. I mean, and that's astounding. That's astounding amount of phone in there. It's the Tensor G2, which, you know, is kind of their flagship chip. I mean, it's everything, you know, it's yeah. um, what's in the fold. It's uh, what they're using. Like that is their chip. That's, that's the chip du jour for, for Google. Like 499 is nuts. Like that's like 
just get one. Like it doesn't even, <laughs> like it doesn't, even, we were talking about Reaper the other week, you know what I mean? About like, you know, I don't know what doll you work, you, you work with every day, but you should also buy Reaper because it's 60 bucks, you know? That's right. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> yep. it's like that cheap. Like, I, I mean, at a time when almost every reasonable mid to flagship phone is a thousand dollars or more, like having that much function packed into a $500 device is, is like, is nuts, man. Like that's a lot of phone for 500 bucks. Um, you know, I have to start thinking about uh, upgrading my uh, my oldest son's phone. You know, he's got an older Galaxy phone and I've been looking at them and like, you know, and I really, you know, he takes a lot of pictures, loves train stuff. And I, I want him to have something that's really good. And man, looking at the, I mean, it's the same camera array in the 7A. It's, and now it's got wireless charging because that's yeah. one thing we use in the house a it's lot. It's really so just like, like a discount 7. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Like you, so I don't know. It's a, but that's a, that's a big deal, man. Like there, it's a, it's a, it's a good price. Like I, I, the only knock I could put against them is like, why buy a pro at that point? You know what I mean? It's just not enough phone for the additional money anymore. Um, so, you know, and then you have your three years of, uh, updates for Android and five years of security updates. Like they take care of them for a long time too. So I don't, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a great, great deal. Great deal. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting kind of thing because you've got this $2,000 pixel fold, which is this, this ultra high end thing that you're going to take over to Spain to order wine. And then you've got this $500 pixel seven a, which is like, you just buy one for everybody in the house. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of nuts, like the amount of power that's there, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Interesting that they're kind of covering a lot of different uh, places there, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it'll be interesting, I guess, to see the Z Fold 5 and how Samsung reacts because it, it seemed with Samsung being kind of the only real competition in the folding space in particular that there were some some shots taken on camera and some other features where they were distinguishing themselves from Samsung and like mm-hmm. specifically saying like best camera on a foldable phone and mm-hmm. some of that other stuff that it's a very close relationship that they have uh, to, you know, take shots when you know there is no Apple foldable that you could be jawing at. Right, that's true. Um, so you know, hitting them both there, and you know, I guess Galaxy has like the Galaxy A or something similar. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm, I don't know mm-hmm. if it is also called the A for them, like compared to their S line where they do that kind of budget line. But I mean, Google's product line is pretty complete now with the Seven A, and they're subsidizing some of this like same chipset same everything like it's a great phone and i think if you're not getting the fold you should just get the 7a like if you're an android person like i don't see any reason to do anything else um they said it's only like four promised updates versus six for samsung devices or like i mean i think there's some change in that but that's what xda is for and you know four updates gets you a solid two years anyway Right. By that point, your battery's done. So why not? Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's something. Yeah, absolutely. I will. It'll be interesting. Cause I think that with the Z fold five that comes out this year, what, how much is that already in the can? Right. Like, do they, I mean, that that's mostly done, right? Like they can't, they have to already be getting ready to, 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 to get these things out, out, out and shipped by Cause I think it's usually August is usually when they, they do the fold and flip. Um, they're, they're more kind of, uh, flagship aspirational devices. So I wonder maybe, yeah. Maybe. I mean, I just uh, peeked and uh, a leak as of a couple of hours ago and says that it doesn't look like they're making the Z Fold 5 any wider, like minimal mm-hmm. changes from the 4. Interesting. So, Interesting. I, yeah, I mean, listen, if you're mostly using it as a tablet and not a phone, I think it makes sense. Like you said, you know, some of the compromises, uh, Google Balance, like, I'm with you. I 
prefer the Google way of doing it because I would rather not open it up all the time to do basic things like respond to a text. Right. Uh, you know, so I would sacrifice a little of that tablet experience because that's all about just being bigger and wider. Um, so it'll be interesting to see because you're right. Like uh, Samsung's 2023 lineup is already in the bag. Um, as incidentally is Apple's, and I don't know if Apple can wait until 2025, which is what's rumored right now, before they drop a foldable. I, I think yeah. I think that's tough, and I think it's theirs to lose because they have a very advanced tablet OS already and you know they can bring that world in there very easily so you know I, the apple thing is always uh, they're never first to market and then everybody squaws like you know they invented the thing but taking the snark out of it their concern is always repairability right like mm-hmm. their service their apple uh, care stuff and so i am sure they're working in a foldable and i'm sure that their focus is 100% on the hinge Mm-hmm. And where and like meeting those standards of manufacturing and quality control because like that's their logistics, but yeah, it seems kind of like uh, they really need to not release messages for Android devices anytime soon, or they're going to lose a lot of fucking people. Seriously, yeah, they have to keep that stranglehold. What else is what else? What else do they have there? Yeah, you're, you're probably right there. I would say probably for Apple, they they will also have some challenge because there is like iOS, right? Like, and I think. Didn't didn't they split off iPad OS like like they did TV OS and Watch OS like didn't they split it off like into a bunch of different organizationally places? yes uh, you know I mean it's still the same core and so you know if you go in the App Store like there are apps that only work on iPad but any phone app will also work on iPad so it's still like the same underlying core OS and so yes uh, like they've split all of that off and watch os is its own thing but it's all also kind of the same ios core outside of mac os got it um so yeah i think that'll be an interesting question whether or not they then downsize ipad os or upsize iphone os that's that's the piece that i think is going to be interesting for them like i think that they made that decision not that long ago in the history of of apple right like that was a maybe a couple of years old, if that, um, that they were separating them and that the store. So what do you do there? Right. Like, I think that that's something that Android, because they've been so weird about their OS stuff and they've, they're so late to this, that maybe they have a little bit of a leg up there because they're not splitting that off for tablets. Right. Like there is just, just apps that get bigger, you know what I mean? Like, and, and some of that's very kludgy and they need to fix that so that the app experience scales well. Um, but if they can fix that instead of just having tablet versions of apps, I feel like that's, that's going to be the the true answer, which means Apple's probably going to have to backpedal a little bit when they have a foldable, because that is the problem, right? Yeah. Um, you just, you can't have like two installs of Netflix, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. You need to have the one that scales wherever you are. Yeah, which is also then a financial problem because you absolutely do have app developers that sell two versions and mm-hmm. uh, monetize two versions where they have, you know, the version SE for iPhones and then their expanded version for iPads. And some of that is because they are two bespoke resolutions and feature sets and they do have to do development. And some of it is just a pure money grab if you want it on a bigger screen. Yes. So, yeah, no, I mean, it'll be an interesting problem. Um, do you want to take a micro break and kind of finish off with a couple minutes on some stuff that we've been playing? We actually, this section went almost an hour. So, I. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, let's go ahead and break and we'll be back in a bit. All right. 
just like that freshly caffeinated um fresh, fresh caffeine fresh caffeine like not just caffeine fresh caffeine that's it that's uh, straight to the line mm-hmm. uh i wanted to hit on portable gaming because we had uh, the asus rog ally official launch this week and mm-hmm. we initially weren't going to cover it because we were going to be responsible and record yesterday and just kind of miss it um but I can't hold back because I was very, what is the word, triggered, mm-hmm. I, I think, mm-hmm. is what the kids mm-hmm. are calling it. By, they are calling it that. By a few of the reviews that have come out before this thing is even in the hands of consumers. Mm-hmm. And so let me kind of rewind a little bit. Uh, we've talked about the Steam Deck. Uh, mm-hmm. We both have them. Uh, various inflection points around Steam OS as a Linux-based operating system that runs Steam. Credit to Valve for making Proton trick games into thinking that they're running on Windows very well and on Mm. the games that they put the work into. In some places, like performing marginally better than they would on the same device with stock drivers on Windows. Like Mm. They've done good in that. The problem with the deck all along has been that you really can't play games outside of Steam that work. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it is much more a console experience. If it's on your console, you can play it and it's great. If it's not, you can't. And that's been particularly painful because the deck is a computer that can run Windows and mm. can get you Game Pass and GOG and Epic and the EA Game Store and all of that. And so Valve opened this market up and kind of squeegeed people's eyes and, you know, the, WinGPT and some of these other companies that have been out there slugging it sort of just craned their necks to say, but but we were already here and all of a sudden everybody cares about the market in very much the same way. I was using Windows Mobile happily until Apple threw down a fist and said, no, we all do mobile phones now. Here is a, a glass screen with capacitive touch, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like very much that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I for a while now have been running windows on my steam deck i had kind of finally just blown out steam os because i just have so many games in the game pass ecosystem in particular and it was killing me to like buy it a second time when i have it especially for games like we we may get into you hit me to ghostwire tokyo mm-hmm. um just dropped and it's on game pass and it's a game that i really knew nothing about wasn't really anticipating and so I wasn't going to rush out to spend $60 on it, but it's in Game Pass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that would like, when you said, you know, can you check it out? I would have probably said, no, nah, I don't think so. Right. If I was just using Steam OS, because I don't think it would have been worth it to kick the tires and see, you know, what the game was like. So two devices to talk about. Um, I want to focus on the Asus ROG Ally launch, but I had picked up um, an Ioneo 2 last mm. week um used from a very enthusiastic ebay seller who is like me very like crazy about this stuff and sent me the dock and an extra controller and things that like weren't even in his listing just because he's like oh my god somebody who actually likes this stuff and mm. sort of went nuts um and windows on a handheld is a pretty wonderful thing mm. uh, it can be great mm-hmm. and the asus rug which was just announced um, looks absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. So to run it down against the Steam Deck, um, it is a 
way more powerful setup. Um, AMD just launched this. Um, is it the RDNA three extreme architecture? Yeah. So Zen four is Zen their 4. new uh, chips, uh, their APU, and then uh, the graphics component is RDNA three. Yes. Right. So this is like their first device with this particular chipset in it, and I mean, it's just uh, it pants the Steam Deck mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. It's got a higher res screen. It's supposedly got a pretty good battery life. It also has um, Asus's um, proprietary cable for their eGPU solution, which is uh, very quick and I think performs a little better than Thunderbolt 4. In some mm-hmm. tests, you know, the downside is you've got to buy their build, which is not just like a chassis, so it's not as consumer friendly or tinkerer friendly. Sure, rather in it. Um, but I've been like really looking forward to this device, and the big question was going to be price because it looks like an extraordinarily powerful machine, and the iNeo two and some of those devices, you know, can get up there like is way more expensive than the Steam Deck. You know, twelve hundred. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're in like pixel fold territory mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of pricing. Um, and so Asus uh, announced it yesterday at 700 bucks for their extreme edition and 600 bucks for their standard edition, which is coming right for the heart of Valve. Like, I mean, that is competitive with the Steam Deck. And aside from loving the idea of this device and what they're trying to build, the support that they have with Microsoft. Um, it comes with, I think, three months of Game Pass Ultimate. Mm-hmm. It does. Baked in. And so, you know, I'll get a little extension on the subscription I'm paying for, but they're really coming hard and playing that up and showing that that's what this is. You know, this is as close to a portable Xbox as you're going to get, uh, you know, with full faith and credit of Microsoft, AMD, and Asus all behind it, putting their support and effort into it. So then came the reviews mm-hmm. and particularly the Verge had a very pointed review that didn't talk a whole lot about the device. Like I think the one piece of criticism that I've seen repeatedly is around battery life mm-hmm. that you're only getting about two hours out of it, depending on what you're doing. And um, it has the same battery in it as the Steam Deck does. So it's the same 40 kilowatt hour battery. Um so on that, you know, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, yeah, if you're in like a four-hour daily commute and have no ability to charge, like this is not the device for you unless you have a USB-C battery pack, which you absolutely can. Sure. Um, but like the Steam Deck will get you a little further. One of the key things that I think keeps getting missed, though, is the Steam Deck has a 720p screen. Mm-hmm. Um, this, along with the, everybody else who's come since the Steam Deck, has upped that to at least a 1080p screen so you can run some native res stuff, 120 hertz uh, refresh rate on this one, yep. um, more powerful processor. So it's doing a lot more with the juice it's got. And you can scale it down to Steam Deck mode. Like You can pull it down to 15 kilowatt hours to get a little more juice out of it. But I think like that is a primary criticism of a triple-A gaming machine in your hands is not great right. because there's just like, there's science. There's only so much battery that you can put in to push these pixels at the density that you need to play a triple-A game, eke out some ray tracing at, you know, 30, 40 frames a second. Like, you're asking a lot. Yes. 
Um, so that was like the one criticism that I saw pretty much universally. The other one that I saw that got at me a little bit more was that Windows is terrible and shouldn't be used for gaming. Yeah. Um, here's my counter, and then I want to kind of pass it to you to get your take on it. Um, in the Steam Deck launched, everybody squeed about the um, interface, which is big picture mode. It's officially big picture mode now. You can have it on your desktop. You can have it on any handheld you want um, with all of the game paddiness goodness that it is. But people squeed about the fact that you could also exit that mode and go to the, I'm sorry, impenetrably dense and not very good Linux desktop that it comes with. Yeah. Um, which isn't even GNOME, which I think is probably the best of the Linux desktops if you really want a Linux desktop. It's it's a KDE variant that um, is used by some people, but it's not like the gold standard. And so the way that you install apps on it is less well-documented for somebody who's trying to learn Linux and get out there. But everybody loved it. Like, hey, you've got a desktop mode. You can dump to it anytime and do desktop-y things with it. And the thing is, if I put Steam on my Windows handheld in Windows mode, and I set it to start on launch and open in big picture mode, then I have exactly a Steam Deck that I can dump to a desktop mode, except the desktop mode is Windows, which is inarguably more full-featured, better supported, and easier to navigate than that KDE desktop. Yes. And so like it's kind of like just this anti-Windows straw man argument that because we're not starting with a Linux OS, it's somehow bad, but like the experience could be identical to the Steam Deck if you wanted it, plus more games. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, like, what is your read on those reviews? Yeah, uh, very much there. I mean, Microsoft Schadenfreude is uh, <laughs> something I live with. I <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I understand it so well. Like, I just I, this the the one two punch we talked about last week with the the CMA uh, over in the UK about you know striking down the Activision Blizzard deal and then the middling reviews of Redfall and like you know just dragging Microsoft through broken glass. You know, like. Oh, over and over and over again, um, I uh, I don't know. They got a thick skin, man. Like it's uh, it's it's tough over there. And yes, I think that the idea that like Microsoft in, is being lambasted because they're included as an OS here when everybody was just fawning over the idea that you could dump into a Linux desktop on the Steam Deck um, for further tinkering is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Um, because when you're in Linux and, you know, and people, the fact that the word flat pack actually showed up in people's vernacular and that that was like <laughs> exciting, um, made me want to actually throw up in my mouth. Like it was just the stupidest <laughs> shit. Like, it's like anybody who's like excited about Linux desktops has missed the point. Like <laughs> there's not, like, what's cool about Linux, right? Like the things that are cool about Linux, is it being open source and free about it having, lots of like nerdy community support and like, you know, being able to scale incredibly well up and down on, on high powered devices and low powered devices. Like there's a lot of great things to say about Linux. Um, but just saying that it's better than windows when you're booting into a desktop is a waste of time. It's like, it is not as intuitive. It is not as well done. It doesn't work as well as windows, even with windows silliness from time to time. I'm not, there's no, I'm not here to tell you that windows is perfect. I'm just saying that in the desktop operating system game we don't even have to talk about it like that's that's a waste of time anybody who wants to use a desktop shouldn't be spending time on a linux desktop you know and and defending it right um 
has it moved, you know, leaps and strides from the absolute broken mess that it used to be? <laughs> sure. Yes. It, I mean, it's gotten to be something that's somewhat functional. I mean, I, I could probably put some people in my life in front of a Linux desktop and somehow make it work for them most of the time, but, uh, but it is not, there's no uh, comparison there. So, um, yes, so you hit it on the head. That's a waste of everybody's time to argue in that direction. Um, I think that there is an onus that needs to be uh, placed at Microsoft's feet to scale to other form factors. And I don't think that they have done that particularly well. I don't even know that they know how to do that particularly well um, with where they are in the market and what they're trying to support and where they you know, want to be in terms of market segments with hardware. Um, I think when we look at Windows 7, which just kind of became this de facto operating system experience, we moved to Windows 8 and things got real dicey because they were trying to sell Surface and they were trying to have a full screen tile-based interface that toggled over to something that was a desktop when you needed it. Windows 8.1 that kind of you know solidified that a little bit. Then going to Windows 10, which like only had the vestiges of that tile interface for tablets, to now going back to Windows 11, which is basically just Windows 7 again. There's no tablet interface of any kind anymore. Um, is sort of this weird sort of circuitous path of like them trying to support everybody and then realizing that nobody liked it and then just ran away from it, you know, and kind of the way that like we've talked about the Xbox, Xbox one and how there was a lot of media and TV focus. And then like people hated it and they just ran away from it. Um, I think that they have to be responsible about that. I think if there's going to be good support for windows and these other operating systems in these other places that they have to take it seriously. Um, with regards to the Steam Deck, I think we talked about like kind of that that great price point around the the ROG Ally that's coming from ASUS now, um, and that it has Windows and that it's got like backing from Microsoft, and that it's at such a great price that they might even be subsidizing some of those licenses um, in a in a business like way, like they might be you know uh, eating some cost on licensing for Windows in a way that they don't other places, um, and that that might actually be kind of a weird uh, thing that Valve might get upset about. But I am here to say that I feel like I feel like moving the needle at Microsoft um, is probably with the size of that company and how historically, and I don't think this is the case as much anymore, but historically it was a very slow moving ship. Um, I think that it was probably difficult for even a Valve when they were with that has Steam, which is without question, the biggest digital storefront for video gaming and, you know, in the world in terms of like desktop computing devices anyway, like I'm not going to say that for, 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 for mobile, but, um, I'm sure that they kind of looked at this idea and said, hmm, what are our options here? Do we build our own OS layer on top of Linux from scratch and don't ask anybody and just get to have our own launcher and make it work? Or do we call Microsoft and see if they'll help us? And I think the option a was the one like you were definitely even even Gabe at Valve is not going to be able to move Microsoft to tell them, hey, I need to be able to boot into this big picture mode and have all of the driver hooks for Windows just for our device and nowhere else, because I'm sure that that phone call would have gotten lost amid a sea of other requests as big as Valve was, right. right? Like they just never would have gotten there. Um So I don't know. Like, I, I feel like the, this, this zone is back on Microsoft. They have to find a way to support these devices and different form factors in a way that is intelligent, um, that is seamless. Um, 
I love that it is a Windows desktop. I love that I can dock it into something and use it as a desktop PC. Uh, you had mentioned the eGPU stuff for the ROG Ally that's coming out. Yep. Uh, I will say the one they did have a, a small bit on that when they did their YouTube thing that I thought was actually kind of interesting. Um, their kind of pitch for why they did that XG uh, uh external you know gpu dock um versus typical ones that go over thunderbolt is is that the external ones are are a lot bigger um than these xg ones that that asus has and they also suck down more power which i was not aware of so like uh, in terms of they're like actually require decent sized power supplies to the tune of 400 watts in order to su- to to supply something on, on the 4000 series on the on the uh, rtx's so um their solution is bespoke because they have made the xg portable um in a way that like those are not quite as portable they're bigger they're heavier they make more heat and sound. Um, and so I don't think they shouldn't also support Thunderbolt, by the way. Like that's not my that's not my argument, but I think that they're they're coming up with a solution that you could also take on the road with your ROG ally, I think is something that's like valuable. Like it has merit because they are fixing a problem that Thunderbolt eGPUs have not fixed yet, uh, which is you can't put that in your bag. Um, so I think that that's a, that's a that's a thought. But irrespective of that. I do see a world where that could be a primary gaming PC. Like when you think about yeah. like uh, your your use case, you I'm staring at your your wall back there with your with your Windows PC back there, and like for the amount of handheld gaming you do, and I want to talk about some of your recent handheld gaming here. Um, you could be using you'll you in 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 a majority of your weeks you're using the handheld gaming more than you're using the desktop gaming but how cool would it be for you to just bring that in here like a switch and go dock it behind you for you know the once a month you get to sit at your desk to play pc games and it just plugs into a an external gpu and it just becomes your windows desktop right you could just use it um that's a critically cool thing and if you didn't have a desktop that allowed you to launch other things and do things like use a mouse cursor because that's what you really wanted to do, you know, for a a real-time strategy game or whatever. Like, I feel like, I feel like having windows there is a, is a terrific idea from a desktop perspective. I just think that Microsoft does have to start thinking seriously about what it can do to adapt to a form factor. And I don't think Microsoft has yet taken it seriously. There has to be a market there though, right? Like I I don't, I don't think, I think the thing when I say that about Gabe calling from Valve and saying, Hey, you should totally make a, uh, an uh, UI change just for the steam deck that we're about to launch. Microsoft doesn't know if Gabe is going to sell five of them or 5 million. Like they have no idea. So for them to put all the millions of dollars in R and D and the, the changing of all that for what, you know? Um, and truly it is the, you, you said it yourself, like even with the I and Neo and the win GPT thing, like, uh, like all of those devices have been here for a little while, but there, there's not a lot of market traction on them. You know, like there's just not enough. So Microsoft is looking at these, like these tiny percentage points of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a business, you know, um, in the same way that they haven't really done a lot with VR either, right? Like they, like, you know, like a lot of people are saying, well, why, where's the Xbox VR uh, solution? And it's because like, that's a tiny market share still, you know, and they, they're not going to put millions of dollars into something that's a tiny market share. Valve has proven that people want this thing. Like, and yep. I think that, that now that that has happened, uh, I think Microsoft has to step in here and help. Like, I, I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, throwing game pass at this, this, uh, at this new ROG ally. I think that's a, that's a cool thing. Like that's a, that, that, you know, game pass is a terrific 
terrific idea. Like it is something that nobody else is doing as effectively as them. And I don't know that anybody's going to catch up to them now because it's been years that they've been in the Game Pass game. You know, my, uh, Sony tried and they're, they're, it's a confusing mess over there. Um, so I think it's a great thing, but but there is more engineering. There is more engineering that Microsoft needs to throw at this problem. Um, that said, I think the compatibility uh, for Epic Games, for the EA launcher, for Ubisoft's launcher, for you know, for Game Pass itself, like for everything else that's not Steam, um, is without question. Like, and just because there's a bunch of nerdy Linux cats that are knocking it out of the park on the Linux side and finding ways to do this um, does not make it easier, does not make it better. It just means that they found a way to hack it. And of course the Linux community was going to. There's some of the smartest people in IT are over there. So like, of course they were going to, but that doesn't make Linux a better solution. Right. It made it an awful solution that had some of the brightest minds to fix it. So so we need bright, bright minds over here fixing it here too, right? Like it has to be a, a fix all around. Um, and I think that that is just more appropriate in the Windows uh, ecosystem because all it really is now is just a UI problem. Yeah, it's so very well said. And I think uh, you almost uh, overstate how much Microsoft has to do here uh, because the reality is on any one of these gaming handhelds, there are things that you're going to do in a third-party software, like uh, just like when we want to enjoy Plex big picture and have a lean back experience, that's a very specific task and the thing that Microsoft has to do is when you drop out of that mm-hmm. you know that's not what they have to solve um you know what they have to solve is not getting your library of games and navigating that and enjoying that because Valve's already solved that uh, mm-hmm. you know Ioneo has already solved that to a degree where you know it scans for your games and even pulls in your game pass games so you can navigate around there if you want to but it's when you dump out they just need a better scale, you know, and they've kind of like with Windows 11, a lot of the settings have been modernized. You're not like getting into that device manager screen where things are still like very Windows 3.0 in mm-hmm. terms of like going down your list of drivers. A lot of it is in this more like modern touch-friendly settings screen where you're navigating around and they need the rest of that in there. You know, you need your activity manager and drive management and uh, all of those basics. And then just a switch so that your desktop mode gives you thumbable icons with a scrollable desktop. Like that's it. You don't need that much more. Mm-hmm. You've got touch response where like it natively understands with the touch screen, tap and tap and hold for right click. So yep. they're like, there's not that much that they need to do to make this work. And so I'm hopeful that they will. Um, you know, because I think that will solve a lot of that argument and that also then supports them and their partners because, you know, I am going to be in Steam on my Windows handheld an awful lot. I don't want to have to get an app that's going to pull my Game Pass games into the Steam OS, but sure. even just the Xbox app on Windows is not very handheld friendly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Like even there, it's not built there and like... Uh, as simple as at a 100% scale, so without doing any of like the native scaling, each game Xbox on Windows gives me a Xbox login permission the first time I launch mm-hmm. and says, you know, do you want to give this app permission to access your account? First of all, yeah, I launched it from your store, so I'm already logged in. Like, please make this seamless. Like, mm-hmm. nobody is not going to want to sign in with Xbox on their Xbox Game Pass game. Also, it's a Game Pass game, so I can't. So stop it. Like, right. I'm not allowed to say no. Right. 
Um, if you say, no, I just can't play this game, but that screen that opens will often bleed under the desktop because it's not scaled properly. So I can't even easily click yes. And so I sometimes have to like try to scroll or change my portrait or my landscape to portrait. Like, so some of it's just fucking broken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And like, mm -hmm. that is not anything that's going to take a junior dev more than an afternoon testing on that screen format to figure out how many pixels this window should be and to just go through those workflows and just work those tickets and clean stuff up. So it's not like they need to reinvent the OS for handheld because most of the desktop stuff, if you want to work with stuff, uh, do things, you're going to go down, do the things that you need to do. Like all of that is perfectly fine. Like you'll do your desktoping on your desktop. We just need to be able to navigate around and pop into the Xbox app and pop into the EA app, work it all with a gamepad because one, kudos to the Steam Deck, having those two trackpads is killer. Like that is great. That's where those thumbs should be. Mm-hmm. But not every device should have to worry about that. And so you just need to make things a little easier to navigate around and have a default desktop mode that recognizes a standard Xbox gamepad because that's what they're all emulating to work in Windows unless you navigate around with that without having to emulate a mouse. Sure. Well, that's sure. it. Like it's really, give me the code. Uh, <laughs> I'll take care of it. I'll get some people on it. Like it's just, or AI. I, you can have AI do it and you just, uh, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, to type in the user story and they'll get it done. So yeah. I think it's a great sign that an executive for Microsoft was standing with Asus when they launched this particular device. Mm-hmm. Um, it means that they are aware mm-hmm. now, like they are awake uh, about what is going on with these devices. And I think, that's an important partner for them. And so I'm I'm hopeful that that's going to help them kind of get this turned around sooner rather than later. Yeah. You know what she said in that, that thing that I thought was cool too, is she talked specifically about um, a version of quick resume um, on PC, love uh, which love that so much. That's a big deal, right? Like that's the, that's kind of the, you know, it's one of the handheldy type things, right. <laughs> that you want to have is this sort of like suspend to disc kind of thing. And, uh, um, I think, you know, I think that that means that they are thinking about some like deep architectural changes, you know what I mean? To support some of this stuff. Cause if they're going to go as far as supporting quick resume on the PC, uh, then they are, you know, then it is, it stands to reason that little things like UI is, are going to get nice and cleaned up too. So, um, yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. So real quick, cause I know we're running long here. So a little bit about your gaming experience on there, since we want to talk about a little bit of content here before we wrap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I picked up the iNeo really my steam deck was struggling there. I lost all gamepad support. I've since reinstalled windows and got it going, but like it is my only outlet into gaming these days. So that's kind of what prompted me. And I also am in love with the idea of Hall Effect controllers, which we'll hit on later. So I needed something to test it out once I got a fresh install of Windows on the iOS. So I went into Game Pass and um, the first thing I saw was High in Life, which was a relatively recent, recent release. Uh, didn't know much about it other than I don't love Rick and Morty that much. I will not accept any complaint emails from anybody on our podcast about it. It's how I feel and it's, I'm going to stand by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of like a comedy-based first-person shooter. And uh, what I'll say about it 
Well, so the whole premise of it is you're a bounty hunter. And so it's very level-based. Like you go into separate worlds and it's get through the world to track down the bounty hunter, kill the bounty hunter, go back, upgrade your suit. And it's potted like that, which is great. It's digestible. You know, you can do one of these runs in about an hour or so to get to a boss battle. Some of the dialogue is admittedly funny. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the idea is like the guns that you pick up are actually aliens of their own Mm. uh, that have personalities and talk to you as you're using them. And so some of their commentary is like, kind of delightful like because you're just like this kid off the street whose house gets invaded by aliens and so like in the first 10 minutes you're picking up this gun like yeah yeah pick me up pick me up yeah just pull that thing out of me okay great um now i have you ever killed anybody before no well okay this will go fine and like then you like shoot someone and it's like oh my god you just shot him he's bleeding oh my god and like so your gun <laughs> is like screaming at you in some very entertaining ways and then some of the shock value for shock value kind of comes in and it's just it's not for me i know a lot of people love it but um it's like these furby like cute little like iwaki guys that are other aliens like chew their heads off um as a drug like to get high and so like there's you go into this like one addict's house and it's just like a fucking bloodbath of these like cute little dead like cuddly animals everywhere and this guy is fucking tripping because he hasn't gotten his fix and he needs to crack some more Furby skulls. And of course they're entirely sentient and can feel pain and scream and run and have societies. And it's awful. Hmm. Um, So play it if you're a terrible human being, Mm -hmm. I think you'll enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And otherwise I'm going to move on to um, Ghostwire Tokyo. Ghostwire Tokyo from Tango Gameworks. Yeah. You just tipped me to it last night. Um, Incidentally, both of these games run absolutely phenomenally on the Aya. Uh, I had to tweak a few settings to get Ghostwire going, most notably the screen res. And I didn't realize that it had started me off at like um, 1920 by 1080. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little much to drive a game like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, marking it down, I think I went to like 1200 by 720 or whatever it was, and like just swimming at that resolution, but I could probably drop it down more and not notice on a seven inch screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very cool game, a very beautiful game. Um, I really knew nothing about it coming in, but it's got a very unique conceit where you are in a motorcycle accident and are dead and the protagonist is taken over by a ghost and ghosts come to Tokyo over the wire. Ghostwire Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And so like most of the people are gone, but you've got like these ghosts that are kind of like trying to capture souls and you're trying to get your sister back. And it's got some very like Japanese anime feel to it uh, where things are like a little over the top here and there. Uh, One of the interesting things they do is a lot of the collectibles are traditional Japanese pieces of mythology and culture. And so as you pick up the collectibles, like they tell you a little bit about them and what they mean. And so one of the first things you do is go into a Shinto temple and like pick up like one of the offerings and it's like legit and tells you about it. And that's always cool when a game can kind of bring you into some of that cultural stuff that, you know, maybe we see around all the time, like some of these traditional masks and, you know, what they mean and the purpose. Uh, But so far I'm really digging that one, which is good because 
high in life, uh, you know, to not really feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So much better than high on life. That's good. <laughs> it's the new better, better than servant. Better, isn't better, it? Yeah, it's better than servant. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, I um interested. The other thing about Ghostwire Tokyo to mention. So Tango Game Works, uh, most recently Hi Fi Rush. They launched in uh, January, but um, Ghostwire Tokyo and Deathloop were actually two PlayStation Five exclusives um, for or PlayStation exclusives. I think Deathloop might have been PS Four as well, but um, they were PlayStation exclusives right before. Uh, Bethesda was purchased by Microsoft. Um, so Microsoft honored the deal for those to be uh, the uh, one-year exclusive uh, on the console before coming out. Um, so uh, Ghostwire Tokyo launched in April of last year on PlayStation and, and PC, but it wasn't coming to Xbox and Game Pass until April of this year. So it's very fresh for us as people who use Microsoft platforms, but it has been up for a year. Um, they did add um, like a roguelite mo- mode and a bunch of patching and stuff like that for this year, you know, since they basically had a year to work on the Xbox version. So um so I thought this would be a great time to jump in, but uh, that that was a, a game that they had shipped last year um, previously. Um, I thought some of the animation stuff looked super cool, like, like with their. It's kind of like that, like uh, thread that you're you're dance that uh, uh, energy thread that you're dancing with with your fingers in yep. first person. I thought it looked really cool. Is that does that translate really well on the on the? Uh, it does. Yes, yeah, so, some of it, uh, you know, because it's. It's very mechanical and reminds me of like older games, like going all the way back to like Shadowrun and like that era where like there's a certain like you've got to kind of attack whoever you're facing, you know, even the grunts, like a certain amount to get them kind of knocked out. And then you've got to finish them by pulling their soul out or their spirit out. And so like you get into very much this flow and some of it in combat with like multiple guys coming at you is sort of time management and resource management in a very natural way because if you don't take care of them eventually they'll kind of shake it off and get back to work mm-hmm. and like you can eventually overpower them and destroy them but you have resources and so as you fight guys you get like your power back but as you attack with the only attack that you've got you drain that and so there's very much like this kind of zen like flow to like getting into some of those scuffles where like you are attacking, pulling, attacking, and sometimes you got to like attack this guy, get him all the way down, but you're not going to be able to drain him. So you got to slow this guy down or knock him back so that you can do this. Uh, so it's a fun combat dynamic. It's a fun flow. Nice. Um, it looks from the first uh, chapter that there are going to be four bosses and all of them are going to be motherfuckers. All right. So I will um, revise my review negatively. By next week. Yes. <laughs> After the first boss fight. Is it like an open world? Like, is it? No. Any, it's not. Okay. Not, not yet. Okay. Anyway, like, so okay. they have, um, there's a lot of map, but at least in this first chapter, like there's fog. Okay. And the fog is putting you very much on rails because you can't touch the fog. And so you can only walk down the streets that don't have the fog, which is very much telling you where the fuck to go. Got it. Um, but one of these mechanics is clearing the fog with these temples. And so as you clear the temples, you're clearing the fog. So I don't know if it's going to open up more or if it's going to open up more to let you explore for pickups and stuff, but that the game itself and where you're supposed to go is still going to be pretty linear. Got it. Got it. So that's almost like kind of like the Far Cry Towers kind of like where you're clearing the fog. Is that like that? 
sort of, except in Far Cry, like you can actually go where that's not. And so like this is more like unlocking new areas or okay. the ability to explore more freely versus just being on your kind of narrow, like one true path. Like you can go down this street and you need to make a left turn on this street and there is no other option. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll definitely do kind of an update next week as I play a little more to see how it opens up or doesn't. But so far, because it's so narratively driven, like that hasn't really bugged me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some like, there's some trippy kind of Max Payne-ish shit in it too that I've enjoyed. Um, where I stopped last night, you're in this apartment building and the antagonist figured out where you were. So he put a barrier down and was collapsing the whole building on you. And so you had to like, run around but like you're jumping between this world and a ghost world and so it's got like this horror feel that like as you're running around like walls are shifting and you know blood's coming and fire's coming and then like all of a sudden you're upside down and you're on the ceiling running (laughs) around um bits of control were like that too yeah so very much like in their wheelhouse Nice. Um, and it, you know, it looked like everything was done. There's like this platforming section because the hallway is actually straight up now and there's chairs and tables floating that you got to platform up to get through. Mm-hmm. So, so far early vibes are very good and, um, no Furbies were killed in the making of this game. That's it. That's it. That's uh that automatically makes it better. Yeah. Cool. So good. And then, so then I guess closing thoughts around the INEO in terms of these couple games, it's really performed well. Any notes about what you'd like to see improved? Any things that you think are improved significantly over the Steam Deck versus wish you had it from the Steam Deck? So I really miss not having rear buttons. Okay. Uh, you know, it has two extra buttons on the shoulders, but they're really better for like function. Okay. So I've got one set up for um, handheld companion to switch between desktop mode and not desktop mode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the general complaint would be the Aya Neo layer of the um, Ally Crate software, the RG Crate that they're going to be using for their kind of gaming layer versus mm-hmm. Steam. Like I don't love the app that Aya Neo built. It's a little kludgy and there's a button on it all the time that says go to China hmm. and like I haven't pressed that button yet because I'm not sure what's going to happen because <laughs> <laughs> you'll have, not, probably have to tell your family about that not ready for that kind of commitment in my life but like some of it like the translation isn't great and I think they need to get some help on some of that like it's very much an enthusiast device where you're going to do some of the work on your own hmm. to get there and so I am using handheld companion more than I'm using um that layer. And so sometimes depending on the restart, the controller doesn't pick up right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually have to launch that app so that it says, oh yeah, this is an INEO device and here's your controller. And then it'll like load the drivers into windows and then I can quit it. So some of that stuff is just fit and polish things mm-hmm. that I'm very hopeful Asus is going to fix in a month or so mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. I get that. And then, you know, it might be that that becomes kind of more of a permanent, uh, back here device, you know, depending on where I fit, like I'm still not sold on the proprietary eGPU, but you know, you're absolutely right. I keep this running all the time and I don't need to, Sure, you know, got a server, but yeah, I, I like the device fucking love the hall effect sticks. I cannot tell you like we need the end controller drift now. Like I I need a t-shirt that's just like a a position on that. Like no more controller drift, please. And those sticks are great. Like they feel great. There's uh, no dead zones. Like they're just precise and quick. Um, the triggers on them are also Hall Effect, and 
I wish that those were adjustable, like an elite, because it's almost too much travel and too sensitive. And so sometimes if I'm playing a shooter, like I just want really a button for a shooter. You don't mm-hmm. need like all of that analog precision for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But on racing games and other things where you want that precision, it's great. But that's a bit of an adjustment. Sure. Yeah, you know, it's like less traditional than what you're going to expect. So it'll be interesting because the ally has Hall Effect triggers, but regular analog sticks. Mm, interesting. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see what that feels like because from all the reviews I've seen, nobody's actually played games on it. They've just gotten it and said, ew, Windows. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so nobody knows yet. That's right. Um, but it does look like the ally has um, their sticks on dedicated daughter boards. So my guess is like you can swap in the Steam Deck. You can put Hall effects in there with a tiny bit of soldering or a friend who knows how to solder. So hopefully that's the case for the ally too, because I think that is going to have some longevity. Definitely. Definitely. So yeah, yeah no, I, I do love the device. I, I think it's a lot better than a quirky Chinese company I would have expected to put out. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on one. I, I, uh, you'll have to demo it for me next time we're, we're around each other. Yeah, 100%. Um, so yeah, we actually ended up doing a solid podcast and we need to immediately record an intro and get this out. So mm-hmm. let's um, do that. Sounds great. All right. We'll see you next week, everybody. 